When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And you're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies. As we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. From Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, Eon, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. If you want to support the podcast, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash jamesbond8z, and you can find the link in the show notes. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where our exploration into the people behind the 007 films has reached the letter M. My name is Tom Butler and joining me on this magnificent mission is the masterfully mischievous Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello. And matching him in mood and mystery is the mannered and magical Mr. Tom Wheatley. Mm, thank you. Uh, this episode will take a look at the many creatives from behind the scenes of Bond that had a huge impact on the series and some whose work you may never have noticed before. It's got writers, directors, production designers, cinematographers and much, much more. One person that we won't be covering, though, is M. We'll be devoting an entire episode to Bond's boss in the near future. But let's kink things off by looking at the most prolific screenwriter in 007 history. Yes. Yeah, so M is for Maybaum, Richard Maybaum. Now, you two like to give me ones that make me go into rabbit holes and if there is ever <laughs> one that i could fall into a rabbit hole with it's uh richard maybaum because his the amount of work he's done on the bond films is ridiculous um and his career is also absolutely f- f- fantastic um uh, so i'm going to try and skim over some bits because otherwise i'll be going to be prattling on for ages um so richard maybaum he was born in 1909 he's an american film producer uh playwright and a screenwriter he is best known for his work on many Bond films, um, 13 Bond films, in fact, uh, which I'll go into a bit later on. Um, but he's also known for lots of other things as well. I found some some claims. Uh, these are Wikipedia claims. I'm not sure how true they are, but based on the rest of the research I've done, they sound pretty on the on the nose. Um, apparently, he's one, uh, his works are the first anti-lynching. Uh, uh, among his works is uh, the first anti-lynching play. Uh, on Broadway called The Tree, the first anti-Nazi play on Broadway called Birthright, 
the first film that dealt with the problem of medication abuse, which is called Bigger Than Life. The first film that dealt with the ethical and moral decisions in kidnapping cases, uh, which is called Ransom. Uh, and the first film that introduced the American public to the importance of training airmen for the defence of the United States uh, in war. And that's I Wanted Wings. So some pretty big claims for the man. And you notice none of those are actually to do with Bond. So you can see he's had a pretty illustrious life outside of the Bond world. But a little bit on his early life. Um, he was born in New York City and went to New York University. Um, and then he went to the University of Iowa to do speech and dramatic arts. When he was 22, that's when he um, did his play The Tree, which is the anti-lynching play on Broadway. And then he actually spent some time as an actor in the Shakespeare uh, Repertory Theatre in, in, on Broadway. So he's got quite an interesting oh, wow. range of skills that he's got involved with. Um, he worked on various things as well. I mentioned some of those things earlier. Uh, in, his, in the 1930s, he was involved with um, a lot with challenging the challenging politics of depression at the time. And in 1933, uh, when Hitler was starting to ascend to his powers uh, of state, that's when Maybaum attacked Nazism in um, in the film in in the in the film Birthright. Um, so all of that stuff sort of led him to the world of movies and he, he suddenly got a contract for MGM as a writer and while uh, under contract there he wrote another play called See Me Lawyer and and it's that starred Milton Burl I'm guessing you've heard of Milton Burl but yeah. I don't know too much about him and it was uh, Maybaum's most successful play and it ran for 224 episodes from 1939 to 1940 um, over the course of his earlier career, he worked at a lot of studios. Um, so MGM, Columbia, he went back to MGM where he worked with Alfred Hitchcock on Foreign Correspondent, Paramount, and then 20th Century Fox. Then World War II hit. Um, he joined the army in 1942 and he was commissioned as a captain in the Signal Corps. During that time there, he worked a lot on morale films, worked a lot on combat film footage and worked on a documentary uh, on the history of World War II as well. And by the end of it, he'd achieved the rank of lieutenant colonel. So after his time in the war, he went back to Paramount as a producer and a screenwriter. And he wrote and produced his first film, which is called OSS. Uh, and this starred Alan Ladd, uh, somebody who's cropped up previously in um, episodes. And it's a fictional story of the Office of Strategic Services, which is the government agency that was the, came before the CIA. Uh, and this started off a very big career of working with Alan Ladd on um, various projects. He also wrote and produced The Great Gatsby in 1949, uh, also with Alan Ladd. After then, he went to Warwick Films. This is when things started to kick up a notch in the world of Bond. Um, so in the 1950s, uh, Broccoli had signed Ladd on for a three-picture deal with Warwick uh, Films, and he insisted on having, or uh, Ladd insisted on having Maybaum co-write the screenplays that he was involved with. So as a result, Maybaum moved over to England with his family uh, and he worked on some pretty big films. The Red Beret, which we've all heard of many, many times. Um, Hell Below Zero. Uh, and he also um, did a film called No Time to Die in 1958, which is a, a war film. Uh, I found an interesting article actually about remembering the original No Time to Die. It has nothing to do with um, Bond in a <laughs> story context. Yeah. But if you look at the credits, there's so many people associated with Bond uh, the Bond series from that credit. So there is an interesting link to No Time to Die, the yeah. original. Yeah, it was produced by Cubby, wasn't it? Um, yes. And um, when I interviewed uh, Barbara Broccoli and asked her about the title of No Time to Die, she said that there was a poster for No Time to Die in the Eon offices, the original Eon offices. 
Um, and she thinks mm. that Kerry Fukunaga picked up the title through osmosis. Um, and mm. that's how it ended up being the name of the film. So it's interesting. Very interesting. A link. Useful facts. So then he also did some other stuff as well. So he started writing for te- television. He started doing short teleplays. Bear in mind, this was a time when television had just started. So he was pretty early in working on um, these projects. Then he became an executive producer at MGM TV in 1958. That's uh, around the time where it started to get involved in the Bond series. So he was brought on to write the first Bond movie, Doctor No, in 1962. Um, but he shared that credit with Joanna Harwood and Berkeley Mather somebody who we'll be mentioning later on in this podcast. And he went on to work on a number of Bond films after that. Not all of them in order. So he wasn't on From Russia of Love, but he was on Goldfinger. You Only Live Twice, he didn't write on, obviously, because um, that was that went to Roald Dahl. And between that, he also did some script work on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which is interesting. Uh, the first Bond film that was f- his sole credit was on A Majesty's Secret Service, which um, seems to be the one that he, he counts as um, the... the the best Bond film, which I'd imagine because he's got four credits on it. He did do some an early draft of Dimes Are Forever, um, but then they brought in Tom Mankiewicz, another person who we're going to speak about in this podcast today. And then uh, he did Man with Golden Gun, Spyro Love Me, and then eventually carried on. Uh, he didn't do Moonraker, interestingly, because they preferred working with uh, Wood. Um, word, but, yeah. But instead, he worked on a Bond spoof called uh, SHE, Security Hazards Expert. Never heard of this. No. Mm. Um, Maybe worth looking at the trailer. And then he came back again. His tenure on this is is fantastic. The the amount of films he worked on over over the time. When he he came back to the later films, um, he started working with Michael G. Wilson. Their first movie was Fewer Eyes Only that they did together. Then he did Octopussy, View to a Kill, Living Daylights, and License to Kill. So there you go. There's a rundown of all the Bond films that he's worked on. On He talks about there's some fantastic interviews um, with him that you can find that really go into quite a lot of depth. And he's very, very honest in these interviews. So uh, he doesn't hold back when he doesn't like something or isn't fond of a certain actor and things like that. So they're really interesting to see. Uh, one line that I picked up was where he talks about villains. He's very keen on villains. He says, the real trick of it is to find the villain's caper. Once you've got that, you're off to the races and the rest is fun. And he's also, Maybaum's credited quite a bit with um, adding humour to the James Bond films, which is something that um, was lacking uh, from the books and needed to be done when they transferred it to to make it more popular on, on the cinema screen. Um, there are two really interesting interviews online about him, which well worth checking out. One is um, from a series of interviews with the screenwriters of Hollywood's Golden Age. I've got, I've went through there's so many different quotes and things that I could cover with with the Bond films, but I'm just going to pick out a few quotes here just that really nicely sum up Maybaum and uh, his focus on the Bond films. So when he's talking about writing Bond films, he said, basically, in a way, the pattern of the story is the same in all of the Bonds. And I think that is one of the attractions of the pictures. You have that engine working, the James Bond syndrome with all the conspicuous consumption, the luxurious locales, the beautiful women, the large and life villains. We've carried it much further than Fleming. And he talks quite a bit about Fleming um, because obviously he was the earliest writer on the Bond film. So Fleming had a, you know, he would speak to Fleming quite a lot. He was changing his work straight away. And he talks quite a lot about how Fleming seemed sort of disinterested in in the films uh, and especially the screenwriting of the films. Um, they get he offered him script approval. He didn't have script approval. They used to send it to him to look at, and he would make some occasional notes in it. But um, it never seemed to be that 
like engaged with it didn't really mind about it he just sort of just shrugged and um didn't get too involved so he did say that uh one one time he said to him uh, the pictures are so much funnier than than my books and he was a little uh, bemused and a little obtuse about it i thought because he really didn't understand what we were trying that we were trying to make them funnier and it's this humor that is what maybaum gets offered in terms of what he brought to to for the bron things and, and and how they work on screen and he does it also talks about how the books are going to re, real detail like Reming, uh, fleming will write uh, two and a half pages describing fish underwater and then when it comes to the film it's basically just you know a few seconds of fish underwater that's it it completely removes anything from the books but he says that you know that's what they had to do to to popularize it and to make it accessible to to people. Uh, he said partly the difference is in going from a kind of cult audience to a mass audience. It was only a cult audience of readers that kept Fleming alive for a long time before the pictures really discovered him. As books, they were not caviar to the general. He's also talks quite a bit about keeping things serious. He has he's he's really adamant that part of the the sort of charm of Bond is he has to have a, its roots in seriousness. You have to believe what the what Bond is doing. And he talks quite a lot about uh, Sean Connery and how um, Connery is believable as a sort of serious character, but he can do the other bits. Whereas alternatively, Roger Moore, he's he's not so um, um, positive about in a, in a lot of ways. So he says that uh, the audience is willing to be lenient about what is real and what is not real. They will allow you to be humorous and they will allow you to strike the humor and be serious for a moment as long as they're being entertained. Anytime you're not being serious about it, the picture suffers, which I think is quite interesting. Mm. Um, And not something that I would have expected from something you don't really think about in the later Bond films, but definitely in the earlier ones. There's, There's always sort of grounding in there. And he also, I won't, I'll, I'll, I'm nearly done with my quotes now. Um, he talks a bit about, he's, he's obsessed with villains. He loves the villains. He thinks the villains are the sort of fulcrum of the films and they have to have a level of elegance. You think about Dr. No, we actually all saw Dr. No last night, that, that he's a fantastically elegant villain. Like yeah. the way he speaks, he just, he's very charming and well put together. Um, and he talks about how he wanted to, Bond to have that elegance too and not be just your sort of average action monosyllabic uh, monosyllabic hero and he actually talks about Harrison Ford in Raiders of the Lost Ark and says he has not a flicker of class or humour even though he's supposed to be an educated anthropologist which um, it's a criticism yeah. yeah oh interesting yeah yeah he's, he's talking yeah yeah um, and then the other interview and I won't go too much depth on this is a, it's an interview that happened in 1983 um, with Starlog uh, I think it's a magazine that was out a yeah. very long time ago. Um, but this interview is fantastic. He really does go to town and he's so honest with it and and, and his work on the Bond films. Um, and he, yeah, he, he just goes in depth quite a bit about um, the, the how he really likes Sean and the, how Sean made the role. He says, in a strange way, some people like Roger better than Sean. I certainly don't. I think Roger does very well. He's suave, witty and so forth. But as far as I'm concerned, he has a dimension of disbelief. He does what I consider unforgivable. He spoofs himself and he spoofs the part. When you start doing that, the audience stops laughing. Just play the part, which is quite a bold statement to make about the Bond series. So other than that, uh, he actually died in 1991 at the age of 81. I've mentioned some of the films that he's done. So he's had probably a big, um, a big back catalogue of quite impressive uh um, films that he's worked on and you can apparently his papers now are at his alma mater at the university of iowa so you can actually go oh, and see those 
Yeah. Um, and just to finish on him, I've got a nice quote from him. Uh, he says, once I become involved in a Bond film, I get fascinated all over again with the difficulties and the possibilities. In between, I keep saying, well, I'd like to do another Bond, but to try and think up a new caper, something we haven't done. But something new always comes up. And of course, I'm well paid. So there we go. Well, I mean, if you were going to compile a list of the top 10 sort of most influential people on the Bond franchise, Richard Maybaum is is in there, right? He mm. Oh, definitely. You know, and yeah. he's also probably one of the most undervalued from a mainstream sense. I think if you picked, you know, if you went on, what, what's the show? Pointless. Not, yeah. Not, well, maybe Pointless. I'm, I'm thinking more 1990s. Um, family, mean, fortunes. family fortunes <laughs> yeah family fortunes what yeah what the who are the main things on uh bond i don't yeah. think he'd come up i mean you'd, you'd have people I, like that have just worked on the last few bond films come up before him but yeah, yeah i think if you ask my mum she might get john barry but she wouldn't get richard maybaum i think that's that's yeah. fair and if you think about it he's the man who came up with the majority of the not just tropes but the lines so things like bond james bond that's him he wrote that in the first film Things like uh, that wouldn't happen to the other fella. That's him. So all these lines are all his. So he's he's just you know shaped this this whole you know yeah film it, series massively. He, he brings a continuity, doesn't he, to the, that early part yeah. of the of the series? You know, at that stage, what did you say? He worked on thirteen of the movies. Yeah, um, that's an incredible run for one screenwriter. And yes, he did work with a lot of different other screenwriters. And we'll come to another one in a minute, but. Um, yeah. Yeah, having that continuity behind the scenes is just as important to the the franchise as well, it's even more important than the actor playing James Bond, isn't it? Because um as we've seen the Bond actors come and go, but the people behind the scenes often stick around for a long time and Richard Maybaum was one of those. He saw through right up to Timothy Dalton's era, didn't he? So um Yeah. Yeah, his influence is, Yeah, cannot be understated, I don't think. So there we go. Richard Maybaum. So M is for Mankiewicz, Tom Mankiewicz. So from one screenwriter to another. Uh, now, Tom Mankiewicz is an American screenwriter and filmmaker whose James Bond credits include Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die and The Man with the Golden Gun. He also did some work on The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. So he was born in 1942 as Thomas Frank Mankiewicz and uh, he's basically a part of Hollywood royalty. You might recognise the name because his father was Joseph L. Mankiewicz. And his uncle was Herman J. Mankiewicz, who was recently the subject of the David Fincher film Mank. So his father, Joseph L. Mankiewicz, won four Oscars in the space of two years, Best Director and Best and Adapted Screenplay. Um, and in fact, he won them in consecutive years for A Letter to Three Wives and All About Eve's, All About Eve. And so his father's Hollywood career lasted over 40 years and he also produced more than 20 films wrote 48 screenplays so just his family's just huge in Hollywood um his mother as well was an actor a, a lady called Rose Stradner unfortunately she died from an overdose when Tom was just 16 so it was obviously quite natural that he would follow his father and uncle into the industry um he majored in drama at yale um and then before graduation uh aged 18 he worked as a production assistant on a john wayne western called the Comancheros. in 1964 he was then credited as production associate on a film called the best man which is a gore vidal film so his first red uh, credit as a screenwriter was on a uh, something called uh, the sweet ride in 1968 which was a film about 
beach bums um but he had also written some tv before that so where he got his big break was in 1970 he adapted uh, the margaret margaret forster novel georgie girl and also a film adaptation of that into a broadway musical called georgie um Unfortunately, that was a total flop and only closed after three days, but it landed him the chance to write on Diamonds Are Forever, which we discussed at length on our episode D is for Diamonds Are Forever. So you can go back and, and listen to that. But basically, David Picker of United Artists had seen Georgie um, and thought it was really good. And what they uh, Cubby told David Picker was we need a writer who's American because a lot of it, a lot of Diamonds Are Forever takes place in Las Vegas. But we also need one who can write in a British idiom. And that's how they landed on Tom. So Georgie is, is, is based in the UK. So we can write for British voices, basically. So he signed on for Diamonds Are Forever and worked very closely with Guy Hamilton and Cubby Broccoli. And he ended up earning a co-writer credit on Diamonds Are Forever. Um, and again, we covered that in, in great detail on that episode. So he did a really good job. Um, and then so he was then entrusted to write the screenplay uh, screenplay for Roger Moore's 007 debut Live and Let Die again that's something we covered in great depth recently on that episode so after Live and Let Die Mankiewicz returned to write The Man with the Golden Gun and Mankiewicz envisioned this film as a jewel uh, and he often refers um, or references the, 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 the western film Shane and interestingly, he said that he begged and pleaded and banged the table to have the Shane star, Jack Palance, play Scaramanga. But Jack Palance turned it down. Unfortunately, on The Man with the Golden Gun, there was some tension bet- between him and Guy Hamilton. And actually, because of this tension or for whatever reason, it ended up being his final Bond writing credit. Richard Maybaum t- took over the writing duties after Mankiewicz had completed his first draft. Something had happened basically on a scouting trip to Hong Kong with Guy Hamilton and and Tom Mankiewicz. um, And they just found that they weren't in sync on what they both wanted from the film. So Mankiewicz asked to leave the film. Uh, He left the film after the first draft, but shared a a writing credit uh, on the finished film. Mankiewicz, he said after the release of the film, was not happy with it. He had hoped it would be harder and more serious. Um, and also felt that his writing on the Bond films had begun to repeat itself. Um, I mean, yeah, Man with the Golden Gun is not a very serious James Bond film. So after that, Tom Mankiewicz was actually drafted in to do a last-minute script polish on The Spy Who Loved Me. He was unable to get a credit on that film, um, as all the credits had been assigned. It's That film is credited to Christopher Wood and Richard Maybaum. Um, and Tom Mankiewicz said that Cubby paid me cash under the table to rewrite the picture. Uh, it had to be kept a secret, though, for the Writers Guild so that if they didn't find out and <laughs> and they had to even had to keep it a secret from Roger Moore. So when Roger asked Cubby Broccoli when Tom Mankiewicz had come on the picture, Cubby denied it. And Roger said, of course, he's on it. He's on every fucking page. Tell him he's doing a good job. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, classic Roger Moore. Uh, Mankiewicz was also hired to write a treatment for Moonraker and wrote three to four pages, which he then gave to Lewis Gilbert to go and find himself a writer. So some scenes from Mankiewicz's Moonraker uh, scripts um, didn't make it into the film, but they were then used in later films. So the Acra star jet sequence that came from his his uh, treatment for Moonraker. Obviously, that appeared then in Octopussy. 
and also the idea of a deadly butterfly pin in the Eiffel Tower that ended up in A View to a Kill. So again, someone with influence that lasted far longer than his, his own movies. So after James Bond, he got a reputation for being a script doctor and he worked on lots of different things, including Peter Benchley's The Deep and also The Eagle Has Landed. He worked on uh, Columbo. He worked as a, as a consultant on that. Um, and then he was creative consultant on Superman the movie and Superman 2. And he went on to write scenes for Gremlins, Goonies and War Games. And he wrote an mm-hmm. early script for Tim Burton's Batman. This was before Tim Burton was attached, but it, his script wasn't used. You can read it online, though, if anyone is interested. Easily found online. Right. Um, after that, he directed 13 episodes of the Robert Wagner, Stephanie Power show Heart to Heart um, and helped develop the show. And then he worked on the film Ladyhawk with Richard Donner. He made his directorial debut with Dragnet, starring Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd. Have you seen, seen that, guys? I was obsessed with that film. I used to watch it every few days when I was a kid. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that was released in 1987. And then he also directed the film Delirious, which stars John Candy. I don't know if you've seen that one. Great no, film. Is it? it? Yeah, really good. Um, so his career slowed down in the 1990s and uh, he said he was actually blacklisted when he left his agents. Um, so that's a shame, bit of a, a sad end to his career. Um, and then talking sort of later in his life, he admitted he sort of admitted he hadn't fulfilled his true potential. He said, it's been my fault, really. Perhaps in the beginning, I was intimidated by my family and its reputation. I think I've done good, solid work. I don't apologise for anything I've done, but I wonder if I've aimed. So there we go. Mm. But a few regrets there at the end of his career. I always think of Tom Mankiewicz and think of like the the witty sort of one-liners. Mm. American flair. Yes. His three Bond movies um, are perhaps three, <laughs> a bit of an ignominious run for Bond, aren't they? Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, Man with the Golden Gun, which is a shame really, but... Um, Interesting trilogy. Yes. <laughs> I think you can credit him with adding a level of what's the word ludicrousness to the proceedings perhaps um or you could say fun fun (laughs) yes (laughs) you could say fun yes but this way it gets it starts to get a bit outlandish a bit silly doesn't it in that sort of era um so just to wrap things up he died tom anquitz died in 2010 after having had cancer but yeah that's uh, that's tom anquitz someone we will cover again when we get to the man with the golden gun i imagine so m is for meddings derek meddings again we have somebody who has worked on decades of the bond films so he was a british special effects designer and early on his father was a carpenter at Denham Studios and I think we've talked about Denham Studios haven't we? Yeah, rings a bell Yeah, and his mum she was Alex Corder's secretary we've talked about Alex Corder as well and so in the late 1940s uh, Derek was able to use the art school training to get him a job at Denham Studios and he would letter credit titles but then his first break actually came when he met a special effects guy called Les Bowie on a commercial. And so he joined his matte painting department. So he carved out a bit of his, uh, of uh, sort of uh, learnt the trade, learnt the skills. And during the 50s, he was creating Transylvanian landscapes for Hammer films. And so because the budgets were so tight, 
it meant he needed to be really creative and creating like string and cardboard and doing all all sorts of things. And and this this was a skill that really sort of he was able to put to use when he was hired by Jerry Anderson. And early on in Jerry Anderson's actually uh, TV career in terms of making his early puppet shows. So he would paint the cutout backgrounds of ranch houses and picket fences on Four Feather Falls, which is a Jerry Anderson show. Have either of you seen that? No. It's a I western. It. It's a western. Oh, a mm. puppet one. Puppet one, yeah. Mm. Um, and then he moved on to design the models for Stingray with uh, Reg Hill. And then moving on from that, he was given basically free reign to work on Thunderbirds. And so with all the skills he'd learned with Les Bowie, he was able to put that sort of logic to use. When when you watch Thunderbirds, when they, they're flying through the air or they're taking off or landing, there was always a problem with how to make that look good on screen. And so he had created the background, move a moving background on a runway to okay. give it the appearance of a moving vehicle. A bit like an escalator. And so that was that just added to the the realism, and obviously, all the miniatures and the sets that he would explode. Uh, and I was actually watching a compilation of the explosions that he did on Thunderbirds, and that it's fantastic stuff. And it 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 it's it goes down, and, and people talk about it as being absolutely iconic and being key to the success of Thunderbirds. Um, in nineteen sixty six, he was involved in the feature length. Thunderbirds, Thunderbirds are go, and then moved on to work on a science fiction show called Doppelganger, which is about a planet that is a mirror of planet Earth. And then he worked again with Jerry Anderson on Captain Scarlet and UFO, using the same practices he'd, he'd used before. So in the first episode of the first season of Thunderbirds, Lieutenant Bob Meddings, he was named after the Thunderbirds art director Bob Bell and the special effects supervisor, Derek Meddings. And so the Thunderbirds work is something that has a knock-on effect throughout his career. Um, But Stanley Kubrick had been impressed with the work on Thunderbirds and actually hired quite a few of Meddings' staff uh, to to supervise on the effects in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Because of Thunderbirds? Because of Thunderbirds. That's crazy. I know, yeah. Uh, another man he impressed was Cubby Broccoli. So finally we get to Bond. So he uh, he worked on Live and Let Die. That was his first one. So Roger Moore's first uh, Bond, which we've covered very recently. Uh, and he said, the thing that was such a success, which actually gave me a footing in the Bond films, was that at the end of Live and Let Die, there was a sequence where the poppy fields explode. Guy Hamilton called me and he said, could you do this as a miniature back at the studios? I said, yes. He said, and it will look good. And I said, yeah, of course it will. It'll look great. So we came back to England. I did the miniatures of this particular poppy field blowing up. And then the next Bond film, they brought more into it. And each Bond film that I've been involved in, they've had more and more miniatures. Cubby Broccoli was obviously impressed with the economic advantage of doing miniature because you could save a lot of money on actually, rather than actually building these things full scale. So yeah, he he was then asked to come back, like he said, uh, for the man with the golden gun. He also came back for The Spy Who Loved Me in 1977 and he worked very closely with Ken Adam and um, admired the work he'd done. 
so Ken Adam worked, as we know, he built these fantastic things at the 007 stage at Pinewood, including the super tanker. But Meddings said that he had more fun because he got to spend four, spend four months on location in the Bahamas um, because he was there supervising design and construction of a miniature super tanker. So this miniature super tanker that they use is actually 60 foot in length. <laughs> and um, They had to do it because it's to do with water again. Remember we talked about this in Casino Royale when they sank the house in Venice? Yeah, and they have to do it to a certain size otherwise the water just doesn't look real because you can't miniaturise water um, and it's the same with this it, that was the smallest they could go to make the water look realistic and film it in a, in a real ocean and of course his probably his masterpiece or at least the most famous thing that people know, know him for is the Lotus Esprit which converts into an underwater vehicle so obviously this, this is interspersed between full-size body of the car and then the quarter-scale miniatures, which nobody could see where the, the join is. Um, I've not looked that closely at it, but I, I don't, I've never noticed that it's miniature. No. I certainly can't tell when it no, flits no. back and forth between them. We've seen it at the cinema, haven't we? Surprised that didn't crop up. Would have thought if, if the... Um... If 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 it was noticeable, you'd spot it on the the big screen nowadays. But I definitely didn't spot anything. Yeah, I think we'll definitely be seeing it again when it's back in cinemas. Yeah, um, this year. So, on on this uh, uh, crest of success, he was talked into creating the models shot for Superman. So again, that was shot at Pinewood, and um, the destruction of the Golden Gate Bridge uh, in San Francisco in an earthquake. That was completely created by Meddings. And for extra realism, Derek Meddings, he decided to shoot on the back lot against a a real sky rather than doing it against a blue screen of sky. Again, this was a 60-foot span of bridge. And then they had Christopher Reeve suspended by wires to give that that look of he's flying and it's in the distance and he's really high up. That's when you had the miniature school bus and and all the cars, which... um, Mm collide together and then superman dives in then the ice planet of krypton which was created from plaster and fiberglass was built on the stage and the disintegration was filmed with a camera mounted on an arm um, which could track along so this impressed audiences so much that he actually received an oscar a special award oscar uh, for his work on superman Um, i think he had to leave before they finished shooting so there is some miniature work that isn't his, and it's one of Richard Donner's bugbears of the film. Right. There's a drop in quality uh, once Medding had left. So then back to Bond, Moonraker, 1979. He basically created the space station, uh, the escape pods. They were all miniatures. Just adding to, I mean, reducing the cost, but adding to that realism as well. And, you know, that's something else you you probably don't consider as being a miniature and obviously he'd he'd learned how to do spacecraft with thunderbirds so mm. you know he's, he can really lean on those skills that he'd learned he worked on krull classic <laughs> i knew you'd like that <laughs> <laughs> and he also had a visit from tim burton which was uh, that was on the irish location of high spirits in 1988 and it was to discuss working on batman so tim burton said it it was not only 
his work on Bond and Superman, it actually was emerged that Tim Burton was a huge fan of Thunderbirds. <laughs> and and Derek Meddings actually thinks that's why he actually got the job. So again, the, the all-important Thunderbirds jobs really reaping rewards years down the line. So yeah, he also assisted on Supergirl in 1989, Santa Claus the Movie 1985, and uh, The Neverending Story 2 in 1990. Then, 1995, for Goldeneye, he created lots of miniature. And if you go back to the episode that we did on Goldeneye, we talk about this, the train crash, there's the plane crash, the satellite dish, especially when they're... Servanaya, yeah. Which are there, then intercut, same method as like with the Lotus Esprit, intercut with real full size and then back to the back to the miniatures and then during post-production he actually died and the film is actually dedicated to him so GoldenEye's got a dedication at the end of the Mm. film his sons Mark and Ellie also worked on this film on GoldenEye Mm. Uh, but he died 10th of September 1995 there is if you just google him the the pictures of him with his miniatures fantastic could scroll through them all day long it's it's amazing um, there's a really good one with, with all of the vehicles that he's created over the years and he's just sat with them surrounding him. But again, integral, another integral character to the part of uh, the Bond franchise. Mm. Absolutely massive, yeah. Mm. Just uh, all that work that goes into making these films believable um, mm. and a, yeah. a, a real spectacle on screen. The, the, the visual effects stand up to this day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And all of these films, they're not CGI, they yeah. are... Um, real and mm-hmm. yeah sometimes you can see the joins but god very rarely uh, it yeah. doesn't take much to suspend your disbelief does it no absolutely it's not better than a lot of modern cgi films well it is because it's really happening you know he would blow up these miniatures and figure out a technique where you you'd slow the camera down to make it look a realistic full-size explosion it's just mm. it's fantastic tangible yeah mm. Coffee, medium sweet. Two, medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where you can buy us a coffee for just £3 or for £3 a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. What's the matter? I don't feel so good. Is that all it does? M is for Mayhew, Phil Mayhew. Now, Phil Mayhew is a fairly well-decorated cinematographer. Uh, He was born in 1941 in uh, England. And he is best known for his work with specific directors, John McKenzie, Martin Campbell and Roger Gosnell. And for our purposes, he was a cinematographer on Goldeneye and Casino Royale, both, of course, which were directed by Martin Campbell. Um, His career has seen him win various awards and get quite a lot of kudos for his, his art. Uh, He was nominated for the BAFTA Award for Best Cinematography for um, Casino Royale. 
Um, he's also a member of the British Academy of Film and Television Arts, and he served as the president of uh, the society between 2002 and 2006. And he was also honoured with um, the International Award from the American Society of Cinematographers in 2015. And according to to, to notes, uh, that's reserved for cinematographers of international repute who have made extraordinary contributions to the art form. So pretty impressive stuff from 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 Phil there. Yeah, he was born in Kent um, during the World War II Blitz and his interest in film started really early on. He... Um, he says he his interest began when he was about five years old, and he talks about his grandmother um, taking him to see Wembley uh, to Wembley Ice Rink to see a Christmas pantomime on ice. <laughs> but um, apparently, during that, he was only interested in the spotlight operators and the skaters uh, following the skaters and the dubbing box where the singers and the orchestra um, added voice and music to the show so he at a really early age he was just obsessed with how these things actually worked um as opposed to what was going on um he talks a lot about his love of cinema weekly visits to the local cinema in 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 particular he talks about bambi as being a, a memory of his um from the age of 10, he says, uh, I knew I wanted to be the man who sat on the camera crane as it swooped over marching soldiers or costumed extras, which is a really weird thing when you think about it. I, I can't imagine many kids of that age not wanting to be the star of it and, and actually be more interested in the camera thing. Probably something that for most people doesn't come till much later. So you can sort of see the dedication he has to this, this art form. He taught himself to take process and print still photographs uh, during his teenage years um and just took picture, pictures of everything from landscapes around his house to just objects just to get good at photography um eventually he saw an advert for in the london evening news for uh, the sales department of mgm where he got the job as a clerk um and he was paid three pound ten shillings a week um I'm not sure if that's good or bad. Sounds fine. <laughs> sounds, sounds good. Uh, and, and along with his friends, uh, he also started up uh, making their own films and they set up a, a studio that they called Studio 16 and they bought a second-hand 16mm uh, Bolex camera to uh, film things with. And he says, I learned so much about composition, camera angles, double exposures and editing, as well as other tricks of the trade by making amateur films for Studio 16. We had no access to sound equipment, so we learned to tell stories with pictures, which I think is a really important point for somebody uh, like this who is so visual in what they do that, that, that that's probably a perfect time to learn um, how to, to make films look great when you can't actually use sound. Um, mm. He also worked as librarian and projectionist, and uh, in the evenings he would get friends over and they'd watch films and sort of go into depth about the films and understand how they were made. Um, until eventually his friend pointed out an advert in the Sunday Times for a trainee assistant film cameraman at the BBC. He didn't get that job, but um, he did get a role of studio projectionist. Um, and then in 1964, he started a traineeship in the camera department uh, at BBC uh, Studios uh, Ealing um, and eventually became an assistant and documentary cameraman. Um, the, ca- the documentary thing is interesting because it crops up occasionally in this podcast where some of the directors and, and camera people did work did begin in documentary filmmaking uh, and it's definitely a, probably a skill set that comes from that in the realism 
that that you do and he talks a little bit about that and says the great thing about documentaries is that they teach you to be ready for anything i learned to compose shots on the fly i knew the editor was going to need cutaways and reverse shots it was up to me to get them by being in the right place at the right time um which sounds like a fantastic skill to have um when you're working on a busy film so just to sort of preempt what everyone wants and get it all before anyone even asked you for it Mm. probably marks the the good cinematographers from the the bad ones so he spent 12 years at the bbc um and then after seeing um his tv work tony simmons who was a, a director at the time persuaded him to become a cameraman or operator on black joy which is a film in 1977 um which was low budget um, and used a lot of documentary filming techniques. Um, But the film became the official British entry at the Cannes Film Festival in 1977. Mm -hmm. And the film's line producer was Martin Campbell. And that started his, their working together and obviously their collaboration over 19 feature films, um, two of which were Bonds. So from this point, uh, he's, he's worked on loads of films. His career is quite interesting. It's, some surprising ones in there actually but he's been he's become known as one of the most versatile directors in the in 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 uh photography and when i tell you some of the films you'll see that versatility um because he's got stuff like the edge of darkness and golden eye of course who dares wins some sort of slightly less exciting ones mask of zorro entrapment bicentennial man but more recently he's done smurfs smurfs 2 and the spongebob movie a sponge out of water so very versatile uh, when it comes to cinematography yeah i can never um, understand that when they move to animated cinematography how does that work yeah i don't know i don't know if you sort of if it's, if it's a slow transition like you I suppose somebody's been in the industry for so long he will probably have sort of acquired bits and pieces over time until eventually he can just do the um the modern style but i mean you you, you've got to adapt haven't you and he's clearly adapted to the, yeah. the way that the industry's changed because if you didn't he would have stopped at the legend of zorro yeah um but yeah so so fan- some some fantastic stuff in the the list of films that he's worked on he's also uh he was also cinematographer on till death do his part oh, dixon nice. of doc green zed cars and the movie bedazzled through those things i thought they were interesting and interestingly he's also acted in um i might try and spot him um in casino royale he plays a treasury bureaucrat uh, he's in the legend of zorro and he's also in around the world in 80 days in some some form mm. um as oh. london hobo which is probably a role he's proud of <laughs> oh, um, yeah so so there we go right m is for mendez sam mendez Sir Sam Mendes, as he is now, he was born in 1965. He's a film and stage director, producer and screenwriter. And also for this purposes of this podcast, he directed two James Bond films, 2012's Skyfall and 2015's Spectre. He was raised in Primrose Hill and studied at Peterhouse at Cambridge and graduated with a first class honours in English. Whilst he um, was at Cambridge, he became a member of the Marlowe Society and directed several plays. And it was there that he started to get interested in cinema. Um, after graduating, he had a few different jobs in theatres. Uh, and in 1990, Sam Mendes was appointed artistic director of the Donmar Warehouse and was there until 2002. And he, this is where he really made his name, a name for himself in theatre. He oversaw um, successful revivals of Cabaret and Oliver, uh, put on lots of other critically acclaimed things. 
um, and stepped down from the Donmar in 2002. But while he was there, in 1999, he made his movie debut with the film American Beauty. You guys seen this? Oh, yes. Yeah. Many times. Oscar-winning film. Uh, he'd been approached by Steven Spielberg to direct this one. So um, the film won the Golden Globe, BAFTA and Academy Award for Best Picture. Um, so um, Mendes also won the Golden Globe Award and the DGA Award for and the Academy Award for Best Director. So he is the sixth director to ever earn an Academy Award for his feature film debut. His second film in 2002 was The Road to Perdition, starring Daniel Craig, who we discussed. Um, we discussed <laughs> this on uh, not the one you wanted. No, the Daniel Craig episode back in the day. That film was also nominated for six Oscars. And then following that, Sam Mendes worked on uh, the other films he directed were Jarhead, Revolutionary Road and Away We Go. I've seen all of those, but not Away We Go, I don't think. Have you? No. No. Revolutionary Road is terrific. Uh, It's a heartbreaking film, that one. Um, But in 2009, uh, Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson were producing a Broadway, their very first Broadway play, a play called A Steady Rain, which starred... Daniel Craig and Hugh Jackman. Um, And at Hugh Jackman's birthday party, Daniel Craig ran into Sam Mendes. And while they were at the party, Daniel Craig obviously knew Sam Mendes from road to position, but they were talking about James Bond, uh, specifically about the troubles that they had uh, making Quantum of Solace and also how they really wanted to make a splash for the 50th anniversary year, 2012. And so he just asked Sam Mendes outright if he wanted to direct her. And he said straight away, yes. Uh, Daniel Craig was worried that he'd done the wrong thing um, by offering him the job without Eon's uh, input, but they thought he was a really good fit to do it. Um, And the rest uh, of that story we'll cover when we get to our Skyfall episode. But um, Skyfall was obviously a huge hit, and one of the big influences on that film was The Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight. And what Sam Mendes said about that was what Christopher Nolan proved was that you can make a huge movie that's thrilling and entertaining and has a lot to say about the world we live in. Uh, And he said, that did help me, give me the confidence to take this movie in directions that without The Dark Knight might not have been possible. So it was a huge hit. It was the first billion dollar Bond movie. It won two Oscars, two BAFTAs, including the best British film. At that point... Mendes said that he didn't want to return to do another James Bond. Um, And at that point, there were plans to shoot Spectre and uh, another film back to back, uh, which was just too much of a commitment for him. And so he went off and he worked on his stage version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and a stage production of King Lear. But uh eon really really wanted sam mendes to come back to do another one he'd had obviously they'd had such a good experience making skyfall that they really persisted they delayed spectre um or bond 24 as it was at that point um to suit sam mendes's schedule and he eventually agreed to do it but as we all know it was a much more troubled production than they'd had with skyfall yes they had more money to play with but there were script issues There were uh, injuries to Daniel Craig. There were delays to the film. Uh, And again, we'll we'll cover Sam Mendes' experience on Spectre when we get to S for Spectre later down the line. Um, Talking about it, though, Sam Mendes said it was an absurdly compressed post schedule with 16 hour days, seven days a week, no time off, no days off. And so 
after Spectre came out, Deadline asked Sam Mendes whether he would make another James Bond film or what he would do next. And he said, I'll probably be doing something else. I'm going to get out of this by saying that what is important is not doing it is not a negative. It's not me saying I don't want to do this. What it would be is me saying I really want to do this story. There are other stories to tell. I've never felt shy of shifting genres, shifting scales, moving to a movie that's completely unlike the one I'd done before. So obviously he didn't come back to do Bond 25. And truth to his word, the next film that Sam Mendes made was completely different. It was a one take film, uh, 1917. Um, and that went on to win a bunch more awards, including three Oscar no uh, three Oscars from 10 nominations and seven BAFTAs, including Best Picture. Are you guys seen that one? Yeah, fantastic. Yes, indeed. Yeah, terrific movie, isn't it? Very. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could say that the opening of Spectre was a dry run for that film, really, um, because obviously that opens with a really long, unbroken take as well, um, stitched together. Um, mm. But yeah, I, I loved uh, 1917. I actually interviewed Sam Mendes for that. He was um, he was really nice. His next film will be a film called The Empire of Light, and that's a 1980 set romance film with Olivia Colman and Colin Firth. So that sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. Very different mm -hmm. to what he's done before, but um, or at least the last few films he's done being action films. Mm, but that is Sir Sam Mendes. M is for Mills, Alec Mills. So Alec Mills was a cinematographer, born on 10th of May 1932. And again, very similar to Phil Mayhew, got that bug early on in life and had a really keen interest at the cinema as a young boy. So he left school at 14 and decided to get a job at a small studio called Carlton Hill Studios in Maida Vale, and they specialised in making B-movies. He started off as a T-boy, and then later on as a clapper loader. So he worked there for three years. He left Carlton, Carlton Hill and went on to do national service in the Navy. Once he'd returned he went back to film. He worked on several movies with a cinematographer called Harry Waxman. So then his first major production as a camera operator was when Michael Reed gave him a break in 1966 on The Saint. Uh, and so he his first experience working with Roger Moore was actually with Roger Moore directing the episode that he was operating the camera on. Then in 1969, he gets to operate the camera on his first Bond, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and he is responsible for the shots they got in Switzerland and Portugal. He said principal photography on a James Bond film usually takes around six months. There are several units, first, second and model, and sometimes flying and underwater, all of which have at least one camera operator. Location work can be very tiring. Um, I think we've talked about that before with 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 them being away months and months on end uh, without any access to phone calls or anything. So that's understandable. He also operated the camera on The Spy Who Loved Me, Moonraker, For Your Eyes Only, and Octopussy. Wow. Mm. He, they struggled to get him back for Octopussy because by this, to by this point he, he wanted to become cinematographer. He wanted to be the, the DOP on, on it. But they persuaded him to do it. And then finally... In 1987, he did get the chance to become director of photography in The Living Daylights. And uh, he then went on to do the same for Licence to Kill two years later. He said, I never used any diffusion in any of the bonds that I lit. 
because it's got to be clear. It's got to be clean. I recall Cubby saying to me, Alec, we want it to look lovely. I don't think they were that mad about diffusion. Someone did mention this to me. Certainly somebody gave me that impression. I had no doubts about what what it was going to be. Anyway, it had to be clean, very clean, sharp. Otherwise things get looking soft. And it's not James Bond any longer. You're making it too pretty. James Bond's not pretty. Which I thought was interesting because more recently you could say that they've gone down the it looking very pretty. He said they were six months they were at Churubusco Studios. So we've done the License to Kill episode. And mm. we did talk about them being away. Timothy Dalton getting homesick as well. He said the shoot in, in and around Mexico City was very draining because um, the humid conditions. And then once once they'd finished, of course, six months of editing, you know, which it doesn't involve him until that final grade, um, which only takes a few days. So working on the project quite a long time there. Um, He went on to make two more films with John Glenn, Christopher Columbus, The Discovery, which uh, gets gets a mention quite regularly, doesn't it? We should probably sit down and watch that. And The Point Men. And then he actually directed two of his own movies, uh, in Australia called Blood Moon and Dead Sleep he's got high praise indeed for Eon he said what a wonderful company Eon Productions are Barbara and Michael and the late Cubby were like a family to me and they don't forget you even years after retirement so he did retire and um, in between before he retired and after retiring he actually taught cinematography um, at the National Film and uh, Television School and he said it was nice to be involved after I retired as it, this was an opportunity to pass on years of experience. And he's actually uh, written a book about his time. It's called Shooting 007 and Other Celluloid Adventures. Uh, it was released in 2014. And it's got a, f- a forward by Sir Roger Moore. So that's one to look out for as well. I think it's quite hard to get hold of. Yeah, one of those short run things, I imagine. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, another another somebody else that sort of spanned across a few decades there as well. M is for Moore, Ted Moore, another cinematographer. You should probably not class this as the M episode. Just call it <laughs> cinematographers and Bond. <laughs> Never seen so many in in one one grouping. Um, so Ted Moore, he is a South African British cinematographer, or was. Uh, he was born in 1914. He died in 1987, um, and he's known primarily for his work on a number, uh, seven of the Bond films, in fact, during the 60s and the 70s. Um, he is a man that got a bit of recognition as one of the industry's finest colour and widescreen cinematographers, and so much so that he won the Academy Award for Best Cinematography for his work on. A uh, Man for All Se- Seasons uh, by Fred Zinnerman. He's got two uh, BAFTA awards for Best Cinematography for A Man for All Seasons and from Russia of Love. So um, must be pretty good at what he does. He Another one, Back to the War. He was born in South Africa, but he moved to Great Britain at the age of 16, uh, where from 1942 he served in the Royal Air Force. Um, he was a qualified pilot uh, and he flew as a cameraman in the DH Mosquitoes uh, with the Pinewood Military Film Unit um, filming bomber operations. Sounds interesting. Uh, and during the war, he um, joined the film unit and began sort of developing his skills in the world of movies. When he came back, he was camera operator on films, big films like The African Queen, The Red Beret, which 
gets mentioned quite a lot when we do these episodes. Uh, Hell Below Zero and The Black Knight. And he was a cinematographer on 1956 High Flight, uh, which is um, all about the Royal Air Force. So something that he was already quite knowledgeable about and um, had ideas on how to film that. He worked on a few films for Irving Allen and Broccoli's Warwick films, um, including Cockle Shell Heroes, Zarek, Johnny Nobody and No Time to Die. Mm. So uh, the original one. Um, twice I've mentioned that film today. Never heard of it before today. Uh, <laughs> and The Trials of Oscar Wilde. Um, in 1962, Broccoli uh, and, and Terence Young chose him as a cinematographer for an adaptation of Ian Fleming's work, Doctor No. Um, and he would then go on to make another six films uh, from Wish With Love all the way through to Man With The Golden Gun, but missing a couple out. Um, he also worked on Day of the Triffids, big, nice. big film yeah. from 1962. Um, the Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, uh, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, which is an interesting one. Um, Orca and Clash of the Titans. So some pretty interesting films there to to work on. Um, so yeah, he's a he's a pretty. Uh, there's not a lot I could find about him. I mean, this is the problem when you research people that died before the nineties. There's not a lot of information online about him, but he definitely seems to have been had a, played a big part in the in in the in the Bond films, and uh, certainly some of the really well remembered ones. Definitely a huge, a huge name in the world of Bond again. Um, oh, I've missed one out. He's on. Call, did call me Buana as well. Oi. I've not mentioned Call, call Me Buana, Seth. I need to get it in. No, we'll uh, definitely have to cover that uh, film in depth on an episode at some yeah. point <laughs> when we've run out of things to talk about. Right, final entry. M is for Merton, Peter Merton. Uh, he's a British film art director and production designer who became the third production designer to work on Bond after Ken Adam and Sid Kane, and he worked on The Man with the Golden Gun, a film we've mentioned a lot on this episode, it feels like. Uh, he began his film career as a draftsman in the 1940s before becoming a set dresser and then moved into the art department. He worked with Ken Adam on Doctor Strangelove and then worked on Woman of Straw with Sean Connery. And then also Goldfinger, Ipcrest File, Thunderball and Funeral in Berlin, all um, Bond and Harry Saltzman related. So in 1974, with Ken Adam working on Barry Lyndon and Sid Kane working on Gold, Peter Merton got the call and was promoted to production designer for The Man with the Golden Gun. Uh, sets on that film that sort of stand out to me when I think about it are, you know, the Funhouse, Scaramanga's Funhouse, uh, the Solar Energy Plant. Um, it's all very much in the vein of Bond, right? Um, and so talking about uh, these sets on the film, uh, Peter Merton said, with the interior sets on The Man with the Golden Gun, I tried to portray our villain Scaramanga as a very educated man with great taste. Interestingly, Scaramanga's maze was the set that gave me the most trouble. It took me weeks to figure it out. We were using mirrors and playing with different colours. We had dark areas and so on. I first built it as a model and we never had a complete set. Instead, it was done as a series of little pieces of set. It was all done in editing. He continued uh, on in the role of production designer for a total of 18 different films, including some uh, massive movies, including The Eagle Has Landed, Dracula 
uh, and both the Superman sequels, um, mm-hmm. Superman 2 and uh, Superman 3. His last big production uh, credit was as art director on Stargate in 1994. That was a, a film I was obsessed with when I was... Uh, I remember. Yeah, <laughs> a teenager. Absolute loser. <laughs> Peter Merton, though, he died in December 2009. So that wraps up our episode on the letter M. But there are a number of people to mention that we haven't covered in depth just because we don't have the time or the energy. Brendan, who have we got? Well, strap yourself in. (laughs) (laughs) So we have Wolf Mankiewicz. um, And he was an English writer, playwright and screenwriter, born 1924 died in 1998 so i was going to just scratch the surface but i found out a little a little story that i thought was quite interesting so the security service actually had thought it had grounds for ordering an inquiry into his political beliefs between 1944 and the late 50s because it it emerged his wife she'd been a communist party member at cambridge and so this 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 all came out in 2010 so the MI5 memo asked for a report on Mankiewicz's wartime record in the Royal Army Education Corps. And it said, this man is known to me as the husband of a Communist Party member and is himself a convinced Marxist. I think there is little doubt that he too is a party member and I should be glad to have a general report on him. So for the next 16 years, agents actually collected information on him as he moved around Britain and... They were intercepting his telegrams, his phone calls, and they were photographing him during visits to the, uh, the Soviet Union and the Soviet consulate, um, applying for visas to visit Moscow um, as part of his membership of the British Soviet Friendship Society. Um, but then later on, MI5 decided that Mankiewicz was no longer a threat to national security, noting that he had considerable success in his film career and that he called for the withdrawal of Soviet troops from Hungary in 1956. So that was quite interesting that they, they spent a long time there, 16 years, stalking him to yeah, make sure crazy. he's not doing anything toward. But how? What, what does he have to do with Bond? Right, OK, well, we did cover it, but he was he, he was the one that offered to introduce Cubby Broccoli to Harry Saltzman because Harry Saltzman had the film rights to James Bond and Broccoli had mentioned that he wanted to make the Bond series, his next project. They then went on to form Eon, obviously, and uh, they started on the first the first film. So as a reward, they asked Mankiewicz to write the first draft of the script for Doctor No. But he actually withdrew after he, after he saw early rushes and he thought it would ruin his reputation. And then by the time he'd asked to have his name reinstated, the prints had been made. It was too late. However, he did get to work on Casino Royale, 1967. So, small win, I guess. <laughs> uh, he His part, he worked closely with John Houston, um, uh, their sequence, which Sir James Bond meets the the representatives. I think that's at the beginning near the, at the castle, isn't it? Right. The, the one that was shot in Ireland. Uh, so, yeah, he PC. worked on, he worked John on, that's his section yeah. of the, of the script. Um, uh, yeah, and then he died in 1998. So, M is for Martin, George Martin, who was a composer, also considered as the fifth Beatle, um, very heavily involved uh, with all of the Beatles' original albums. 
Um, he was born in 1926 and died in 2016. Uh, we've talked about him in Live and Let Die recently because that's that's the soundtrack he composed for Bond. Um, in 1998, he he did. Uh, I don't know if any of you listen to this but he did in my life which was yes. an album uh, yeah of songs yes. by celebrities bond uh beatles songs by celebrities and sean connery sing uh doesn't sing it he talks in my life yeah um, it's a good rendition actually it's pretty uh, it's the one yeah. that william shatner's on yeah yeah uh, is it shatner on it as well yeah uh well it's got goldie horn robin williams uh celine dion and phil collins are on it uh but he said i i've had a bloody good innings Knowing that I would have to finish, I decided I'd make my own last record. It's a kind of tribute to to all the people I've been lucky to work with over the years. Um, but I actually think one of my favourite pieces of his work, just going off piste here, is the Cirque du Soleil work called Love. Yeah, it's great. I think it's absolutely excellent. I think he worked on that with his son, didn't he? G- Giles Martin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's loads of stuff on on George Martin. We we would have to do a whole new podcast to to cover him properly. So, M is for Mather Berkeley Mather, who is a writer. Berkeley Mather is actually the pseudonym of John Evan Weston Davies, um, who was born in 1909. His second novel, The Past Beyond Kashmir, 1960, was actually reviewed really well by Ian Fleming, who then suggested that Mather should write the script for the first Bond film. So the script was actually already thrashed out. So Mather's task was to sort of inject a bit of satire, a bit of slight, slight bit of comedy into it, which then people would moving forward go on to really exaggerate. He was offered a percentage of the takings, box office takings for his work on the script, but he said no and opted for a flat fee. M is for MK12. And they are a a design and filmmaking collective uh, based in Kansas. Not in Milton Keynes. Not in Milton Keynes, no. What a shame. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Founded in 2000 by Jed Carter, Tim Fisher, Matt Fraction and Ben Raddatz. Um, They've been... uh, They do numerous works. They do adverts um, and work with TV companies. But their their big hitters have been uh, Beatles and Green Day Rock Band, if you remember those yes. the games, the video games, and uh, Microsoft's Alan Wake video game. Yeah. And then the in-film uh, graphics for Stranger Than Fiction, The Kite Runner, and Quantum of Solace. So that's how they are relevant to that. And we will we will mention the the work they did on Quantum of Solace when we get to that later episode. Uh, and finally, M is for Moses, Albert Moses. He was born in 1937, was a Sri Lankan actor. Um, and he actually starred in two Bond films. First, he was a bartender at the club in my uh, in uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. Right. And then a more important role as Sadruddin, uh, as the head of the MI6 in India, in Octopussy, in 1983. Um, Interesting. So he he began his acting career in India in the 60s. He came over to Britain, settled here in 1970, and he was also in The Man Who Would Be King, 
And uh, he actually got his role in The Spy Love Me after he attended a casting where they saw actors who spoke Arabic. And then that allowed him to then go on to have the bigger role in Octopussy, where he got to do scenes with Roger Moore. Very good. Yeah, one of those few actors that's appeared in multiple Bond films yeah. in different roles. Um, shall we have a look at the characters then, under the letter M? Let's do it. So, first up, Jill and Tilly Masterson. The Mastersons from Goldfinger. Thoughts on these? Mixed bag. <laughs> Obviously, Shirley Eaton plays Jill Masterson, the one that gets killed and covered in gold. And Tanya Mallet is Tilly Masterson, who joins Bond on his mission um, to track down Goldfinger. But yeah, Tilly, mixed bag. T- Tilly might be the one weak link in, in the whole of Goldfinger. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. Um, but yeah, Shirley Eaton's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, and a great ambassador for Bond. Um, yeah, someone yeah. who's done a lot for the for the series. Uh, Rennie Mathis, Giancarlo yeah, he's, he's Giannini. Right. I like him in uh, Casino Royale. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, feel, I feel like he's he's another safety blanket for for Bond. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a modern version of uh, well, I say modern. He's um, yeah. He's another one of those characters that. You know, wh- wh- who we got the other ones? Uh, Automatic Secret Service. What's his name? Oh, you mean the father figure type thing? Yeah, the father, father figure, the friend who's sort of looking out for him. I know he's not early on, but later on he is. Yeah, um, yeah, he's sort of like the French Felix Leiter almost as well, isn't he? But yeah. you are sort of not really sure whether whose side he's on to start mm. off with. I always, yeah. Rem- yeah. He, I think he's good in in Casino Royale, but then he gets that weird death in in Quantum of Solace, doesn't he? Where he gets bundled into a bin. I always felt a bit sad for him <laughs> after that. <laughs> May Day. Right Gra- then. Grace Jones of you to a kill. Where do we start? I bloody love May Day. She's one of the most memorable people in the whole Bond series. Yes. I'm a big fan. Yeah. I, I think it. it's it's the, the opposite of what Tilly is to Goldfinger. May Day is to view to a kill. It's one of the highlights for me. Yeah, yeah definitely. That's yeah. I, I, Not for I, Roger. Yeah, not for Roger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, worth revisiting our review to a kill episode to to learn more about Mayday and and how Grace Jones and Roger Moore didn't get on. Um, but you know, I'm a big fan of Grace Jones generally, and she's just very distinctive in that movie. It makes that mm. movie memorable. Um, yeah. I think and very threatening. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And then Cara Milovi, Living Daylights, played by Mariam Diabo, um, <sighs> also someone else who's a. A great ambassador for Bond. Yeah. Good ambassador for Bond. Not not such a good uh, actor in Bond. Yeah. I don't know if I. She's just sort of. Um, I don't think she gets a good role in the film, does she? She's sort of a bit placid. Not not that exciting. No chemistry with Dalton. She's fine. Yeah. Camila Montez, played by Olga Kurylenko, again another Quantum of Solace character, and I would say she is one of the better things about Quantum of Solace. She's certainly, I think she's an interesting one because she's probably one of the most progressive characters in a female characters in a Bond film because she's not really a love interest, is she? She's she's just part of the story that he's involved with, and they never even make any attempt to make it a love story, which I think is a nice step forward. But yeah, it, she's she's definitely one of the better parts of that film. She's no Strawberry Fields. <laughs> no one is. No one is. She gets a lot, a lot more to do. I, I think she's really good. I think she's had an interesting career as well after Olga Kurylenko. I thought she was mm. really good in The Death of Stalin. Um, 
But yeah, well, let's let's wrap it up there then, shall we? That is the letter M uh, done. As always, um, we are glad uh, that you've listened. If you listened to this episode, thank you for, for joining us on this journey through the letter M. Our next episode will be on Money Penny. Um, so that'll be an interesting one. I'm really looking forward to doing that one. If you want to support us on the podcast, we've launched a coffee page. That's ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z. You can donate three pounds to buy us a coffee. You can do that as a one off or you could do it every month if you wanted to. But it all helps us put the show together and we really appreciate it when times are tough. So uh, whatever you can offer is greatly appreciated. But if people want to email the show, how do they get in touch with us? Podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk And if they want to get us on social media, at jamesbondatoz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Thanks to everyone who has supported the show so far on Coffee. It's it's really, really appreciated. We've had lots of nice messages from people on there. So um, uh, on that note, without further ado, it just leaves me to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week. Thanks a lot. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. Podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Inglemels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.